somebody somewhere The heat of the night Looking pretty dangerous Running out of patience
Welcome again to the Strange Room Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and uh, that track was by Cregan and Co. Passion, and it was uh, from their live in the studio album from about six years ago. And uh, Jim is, uh, you know, one of the UK's most notable rock guitarists, a well-known songwriter, and uh, he's had an incredible career in many groups and with many uh, incredible artists, and, and written, you know, some fantastic songs along the way, including. This particular track, Passion, and uh, welcome, Jim. Hi. Hi, Jason. Tell us about Cregan & Co. There is quite a strong tie with Rod Stewart, including that song, which I understand you co-wrote with Rod. Yes. Um, well, Cregan & Co. is um, is a band I started originally with a guy called Gary Granger, who also played in the, the Stewart band with me. We were both founder members of, uh, of that band when the faces broke up. Rod started his own band, and uh, Gary and I were 
two of the guitar players in it. And um, uh, so fast forward, you know, 30 years or so, and uh, Gary and I were talking. We didn't see each other that much because I lived for 22 years in the United States and Gary stayed here in England. But anyway, I bumped into him and we said, you know what, it'd be nice to get out and play because I'd come off the road. I'd been with Katie Mellua for a long time and I decided when my daughter was born, I was going to stop touring for a while. So I thought I'd, I'd stay home. And I got it was all all right. And then she went decided to go to school, so not quite as, as needed around the house as much. So I thought I'll do some gigs. So Gary and I put this band together, which we, we called Apart From Rod. Um, and we, this was to play the music that we wrote with him. And eventually, uh, that Gary, Gary was unwell for a little while and uh, took himself out of the loop. So... Uh, we had a name change because the other thing was that people thought we were a, a, a tribute act, which was a bit annoying, really. <laughs> it was a bit of a mistake. <laughs> and uh, so we ended up, uh, I, I put this band together and all the, all the players all just fell into my lap just completely by accident. I didn't even audition people. A, a friend of mine who was the singer said, uh, I, I know these guys, what, do you want to try them out? And I tried them out and I just went, that's it. We don't have to look any further. They're fantastic. And and uh, we've been playing together ever since. So that's uh, that's the, how this this band that I have now was put together, and we just play gigs around the country. You know, mostly now we're doing theatres uh, concerts um, rather than we started off obviously playing clubs and bars and stuff like that. We we found that that didn't suit us quite as well as uh, as a theatre gig because I'm used to playing concerts rather than clubs. And um, and we're having a great time. We're selling out. We're doing great business. Everybody still loves each other, and uh, it's it's one of the great. I, I wish I'd done it earlier. Really, the guys are really busy. That's one of the difficulties of not having a, a band that that uh, you know puts on tours and goes around the world all the time, where everybody's only working for one act. These guys, I mean, for example, our piano player Sam Tanner is the lead singer and and a songwriter in a, in a band called Brother Strut, which does really well. Um, and our drummer plays with a band called Thunder. Um, you know, so he's often, uh, you know, all over the place. So, so we can't always get together, you know, but even if, we, if somebody wants us to play a concert, uh, we can't always uh, do it because somebody, you know, too many people are missing. We can, we usually, we can manage to do a gig if there's only one person missing, but when there's more than one, it gets to be a bore because then you've got to rehearse. <laughs> Marvellous. And uh, I think we are dotting Cregan and co tracks throughout this podcast, which is great. And uh, we're, we're kind of almost taking a chronological look at, at your musical journey. I'd like to take us way back now, 50 years to the Blossom Toes a track from, um, you know, really well-received an album now, We Are Ever So Clean, and a track of yours, <laughs> <laughs> When the Alarm Clock Rings. Uh, can you tell us about Blossom Toes and, and, and your memories of writing and recording that material? Yeah. Um, well, let me start. Where, where do I start? Um, uh, Blossom Toes morphed out of a band called The Ingos that were a, a sort of a club band working in Paris all the time. Which was, or, or and front, and the rest of France, but mostly in Paris, which was a ridiculous way to start my. It was almost the start of my professional career. There were a few other bands in front of that, but but when I joined that band, we went to live in France, which was brilliant for me because I, you know, I love the city of Paris. It's fantastic, and you know, the, the, there was the, a lot of people doing the, the Star Club in in Hamburg, and w- the same sort of thing was going on in France. Only not it didn't become as well known, but there was a club called the Bus Palladium which in, the Ingos kicked off. 
and we were working uh, seven nights a week there. So, and, and it's 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off uh, from about 10 o'clock in the evening till three in the morning. So, so I could talk about, you know, knocking the band into shape, but, you know, the tough way. And we came back to England and, and, and George Edgar who managed us, who was a quite famous manager in his day, you know, managed Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and John McLaughlin and, and various bands that they were in, the Yardbirds, um, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Giorgio put us in a house in Fulham and said, right, I want you to write a lot of songs now and uh, you're going to turn you into a very famous group. And I'm going to change your name. And it changed our name to Blossom Toads. And we had all the kind of pop paraphernalia that came with it. You know, we had, they started to make a cartoon series, uh, a, a drawn cartoon series appearing in the, in the New Musical Express. And gave us all character names. It was all it was all kind of weird. But Brian Godding, the the uh, the other guitar player and the other writer in the band, was a really seriously good writer. He's a much better writer than me. And uh, and I think we Georgia was basing how we, well we were going to do on mainly Brian's work. I, I kind of snuck a few songs in there, but it was essentially I think he was the more important of the of the two of us. And so that first album we made was. Well, the, the pro- one of the problems was it, it got called Giorgio Gamelsky's Lonely Hearts Club Band because we were making it at the same time as Sergeant Pepper. But we never heard Sergeant Pepper. I mean, it came out about, well, say about three weeks before our album came out. But of course, our album was finished when we heard it, but we got accused of kind of copying it. But it wasn't true at all. Uh, that was a bit of a, and so we took a bit of a hit from, from that. You know, it happened with, uh, with, with something I did with the, the Choir Boys. The Choir Boys record came out about a month after the Black Crows album, and they said, oh, we'd copied them. But, you, you know, by the time the record's finished, there's quite a long gap between that and the actual release. It used to be at least six weeks and maybe two months. So um, anyway, that was, that's the same sort of thing happened to us. We took a bit of a punch for that. And it was, a, it was an odd album. I mean, there were some very quirky songs in it. I didn't do anything in terms of success. Um, but later on, people started to fall in love with it. I mean, I'm, I'm happy they did, but, you know, there's a lot of work went into it, of course, as, as all records. Um, and there were a couple of moments that were really quite annoying where Giorgio, Giorgio was a bit, a, a bit heavy-handed with his control because the band could play, but um, he thought that on some occasions it should be session musicians and an orchestra. So we had to sort of take a back seat while other guys played our music. In fact, I think uh, Jimmy Page is playing on one of the tunes.
You know, anyway, it didn't do very much, and we got we didn't the, the whole pop blossom toes thing sort of fell over of its own accord, and we went back to writing more uh, songs that we liked better. You know, that were that were not quite as um, as quirky and, and were more rock. And then we invented the well, I say we invented it. We we bumped into the harmony guitar thing, Brian and I, and um, and then that became the the signature of the, the blossom toes in the second the second album that we made and that was quite influential for people like uh, Wishbone Ash uh, they said that they nicked the idea of their harmony guitar thing off Blossom Toes which was nice of them to own up to it I thought that was quite generous of them instead of you know just stealing the idea and keeping quiet about it <laughs> and again again we had the same problem with this band in America called Spirit who were doing the harmony guitar thing at the same time and people said oh you were you were listening to Spirit weren't you we went no actually we didn't hear Spirit too much later but that, anyway, it was just the, the the music of the time in your head, you know, what, what, and what was going on, you know, around you. So people were kind of moving in parallel. And it was a great band. I liked really being in that band, but um, it fell apart. Uh, we had a car crash, and Brian Godding, who who, who was a, a bit ambivalent about about playing on stage, sometimes you know, you'd have to drag him out of the dressing room. He didn't want to go on. I don't know if he still has that, but he did at the time. I think that when we had the car crash, he thought, well, maybe I'm going to take a break. So he did, and the whole thing just ground to a halt. It was a shame, really, because we were really on the edge of cracking it in terms of of uh, gigging success. We were selling out all the clubs and places we played, and we were playing festivals and going down really well. It was, um, it, yeah, it was ready to break another couple of years, and we probably would have been quite a, a genuinely successful act. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> You've had plenty of success, Jim. <laughs> don't, you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> Let, let's play Indian Summer, which is uh, one of your tracks from the uh, second and uh, you know equally excellent uh, Blossom Toe albums, if only for a moment. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, good. Yeah.
now we do move into the uh, 70s in a you know a further shift in sound we move on to a a band called Stud, and I think you were the, the lead singer in that group, weren't you? Yeah, I was, yeah. After the Blossom Toes broke up, I went down to Positano in Italy to stay with a friend of mine called Sean Phillips, who was supposed to be writing some uh, music for theatre, for a theatre piece, uh, but the theatre piece fell over. I was left stranded in, in Italy with Sean, which was a pretty nice place to get stranded, and a pretty nice guy. I used to go busking in the in the cafes in Sorrento. You know, I had a little motor scooter. I'd ride there with two beautiful French actresses who would walk around and sing Bob Dylan songs. One of the girls' sons would go in, in and out of the tables with a little bag. He's a handsome little lad, about 12. And we'd make a load of money and go down the road to another cafe, have a great lunch and, and go home and buy groceries and feed ourselves. And it was uh, it was not a bad life, but eventually I, I decided it was time to actually start taking life a bit more seriously. Came back to London because of my work in Blossom Toes. These guys, uh, John Wilson and Charlie McCracken from Taste, were forming a band and said, uh, "Do you want to be in it?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." I always liked Taste. I thought Rory was a great guitar player, and the rhythm section of uh, John and Charlie was stupendous. I mean, they were they were serious players. The only problem was. But we didn't really have a direction. Um, John Wilson wanted the band to be uh, a version of Tony Williams' Lifetime, which meant that I had to be John McLaughlin, which was something that I really didn't want to do, but I went along with it because uh, John was such a persuasive lad. And I thought, well, I can try this out, you know. But So I was playing as fast as I could all over the neck. You know, to be honest, it was it was major bluffing. I didn't really know what I was doing at all. I was just making all this racket. And we were playing in daft time signatures like three and two thirds four, which if you count that out, comes out to thirteen eight or something like that. And so <laughs> we were taking a solo and counting to thirteen in your head at the same time. Not that easy. It was kind of good for me, I suppose, in as much as it pushed all my uh, boundaries and chops up a lot, but. Um, and I think I got voted, you know, best guitar player, no, somewhere in the top 10 guitar players poll. But it was all basically rubbish. Then we had a, a, my side of it, which was some sort of pretty little acoustic ballads and things. We were doing those as well. So it was, what a, how confusing for the audience. And pretty confusing for the band too. And that went on for a while. But we, we started off with a big bang, of course, because these guys were from Taste and Taste was huge. Uh, and then the audience sort of stayed away in droves uh, because you know, nobody understood what was going on, including me. <laughs> if we'd had a better direction and some better songs and maybe even a proper producer, we didn't have a proper producer. We had the manager's son, which was the height of nepotism. I thought Trump was bad, but this was pretty, this was even worse. He'd never made a record in his life and uh, didn't know anything about recording, but wandered around with those little link leads around his neck, you know, the ones they used when the patch bay in the studio, and pretended he knew what he was doing. He hadn't got a clue. Yeah, that was, it was kind of fun. You know, I liked working those guys. Um, you know, we did some, a lot of work in Germany, and, you know, some people really liked it. I listen to it now, and I don't understand it at all. <laughs> I didn't really understand it then either. <laughs> I think you'd be um, pleased to, to hear that I've picked one of your pretty little ballads, Turn Over the Pages, rather than the jazzier numbers. Oh, Turn Over the Pages. Oh, yeah, okay. That was, uh, yeah, that was my uh, a sort of protest song you know, about um, about how we look the other way when uh, charities come rattling their tins at you. Yeah, uh, that, but that's not a bad little song, yeah. 
yeah, I'm, I'm, well, nice. I'm glad you can play that instead of uh, uh, whatever whatever the other stuff is. It was a title once, one one two two three four or something. It was a title on the title. Yeah, yeah, pretty hard to listen to.
So after Stud, you uh, joined a family in the sort of latter end of their their first uh, you know incarnation, which um, back into a major major group. Roger Chapman and the guys. Yeah. Well, somewhere in there, I, I worked with uh, the, the girl who became my first wife, uh, Linda Lewis. I think it was prior to family. There was a family connection because she was managed by a guy called Tony Kurvish, who also managed family. So we were all, you know, in the, as they used to call it, from the same stable. There we were. Uh, we all knew each other. And the story of me ending up in family is about, about the bass player, John Wetton, who is a very dear old friend of mine, came from the same town. I'd known him since he was about, because he's a bit younger than me, since he was about 16. And he turned into this monstrous bass player. And uh, Stud had taken on uh, John Weeder, who was the bass player in Family, and he left, leaving a gap. Uh, and he came and played with Stud, actually. You know, they were asking around, anybody know any good bass players? I said, I know this guy, John Wetton, give him a try. And they loved him, and because he, he's a wonderful player and a really nice man. So he stayed for a couple of years and then he left. After he left, uh, I got a phone call from uh, Charlie Whitney who said, we're in trouble. John's left. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. They said, well, you know, you're going to have to play bass. And I said, what do you mean I've got to play? I'm a guitar player. I don't play bass. Of course you can play bass. Well, I, not only do I not play bass, I haven't got a bass. You have now. We've just bought you one. You're playing bass. Oh, blimey. Why? Well, because it's your fault. You know, if you hadn't got John Wetton in the band and he wouldn't have left and we wouldn't be stuck and we need a bass player. So, using that wonderful Leicester logic, I said, okay. And uh, then I, I was in the band for a couple of years. It was a really interesting band to be in. First of all, it was my first time to be getting, you know, quite good money uh, because, you know, we would travel around in a Bentley and, you know, would stay in nice hotels. That was all new for me. I hadn't really done much of that before. And we toured America, uh, opening for Elton John for 13 weeks. That was very interesting. And I met Bernie Taupin. Uh, you know Elton's co-writer, and he and I became pals. We we shared a love of, of Jack Daniels backstage after after Family finished and before well and sometimes during Elton's show because mostly we would stay and hang out at the gig after we finished. We didn't rush back to the hotel; there was nothing to do there. So we'd stay at the gig and hang out with uh, with the, the, their crew, and then hang out with Elton and his band. Uh, when their gig was over, it was it was a really it was a, actually a very nice tour in terms of getting on. It was lovely, but we they didn't like us that much. The Americans, Roger's voice is quite different from pretty well anything the Americans could offer, and they didn't get it. And the music was too, should we say, um, it was very progressive uh, family's music and quite challenging to listen to when you feel you know up against a great sort of pop rock writer like uh, Elton and Bernie. Uh, we didn't do that well. Uh, so we spent all the money that we'd earned on the British and European tours where we would make loads of money selling out concerts. We built up a war chest of dosh and went to America and spent it all and came back with a tail between our legs and had to do it all again. So that was a bit of a bore. We got fed up with that in the end and, uh, and jacked it in because if we couldn't crack America, it seemed we were destined to go around the same circuit. And they'd been doing it a long time as that band. I think Roger and Charlie thought they'd gone as far as they could. And so uh, that one wound down as well. We had a great farewell tour, though. My goodness. The family farewell tour was the stuff of legends in terms of bad behavior and parties and, you know, everywhere we went. You know, because it was really quite popular in, in England. Very good. Tour. And then I got on a plane 
and flew to Dallas the next morning after this sold out, reckless, you know, throwing everybody in the swimming pool party uh, on the farewell. Got a, flew to to uh, where did I say Dallas was it? Yeah, I think it was Dallas, and um, and started a Linda Lewis tour that next day. And talk about bringing yourself down to earth with a bump. We played to uh, a room that had three people in it. There were more people on the stage than there were in the audience. <laughs> it, was, it was, oh, okay. I'd forgotten that this is what the other side of, uh, of kicking. Uh, never mind. It turned out all right in the end. Your song on uh, the, uh, the final family album, It's Only a Movie, Checkout, seemed to be quite apt for, for the group. Yes, yes. It, it, <laughs> yeah, maybe it was prophetic. Uh, that's yeah, not a th in the middle of that. Um, yeah, I, I quite like that song. In fact, we when we did these family reunion gigs recently, um, we played that one live, and it's quite a nice, it's quite a nice rock tune to play. In fact, I sh- why, why don't I put that in the show? That's a good idea. Yeah, I've forgotten about that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we do burlesque sometimes, depending on what kind of audience we've got. We play burlesque because it's quite well known. Um, I'm talking about Cregan and Co now, um, but checkout would be checkout would be even better. Well, I look forward to that on the tour then. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for the tip. So, um, where does that? Uh, so, you're going to play checkout? Good. Let's listen to that.
and now from family, you uh, you joined up with Steve Harley. How how did you, you get to join with Steve? Steve, because I know that there's that famous story of him disbanding the original Cockney Rebel, etc. Yeah. Well, uh, after he after that band fell apart, uh, Steve wanted to go in the studio, so he booked um, I don't know where it was. Air, yeah, Air London, and and a band was put together to play a couple of tunes. And I was rode in there because she liked the bass player, George Ford. And George Ford and I had known each other a while. Uh, I guess everybody else was working. So George uh, recommended me and I wasn't busy that day. So we had um, Pete Wingfield on piano, Simon Phillips on drums, George and me and Steve singing and strumming a guitar probably. Uh, I can't even remember what songs we did or even if they ever came out. But we did a couple of tunes and, and we all got on very well. And then suddenly I got a call saying uh, from Steve saying, uh, I've got a, a festival to play. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, okay. I said, well, when is it? Well, it's, it's next week or something. I was kind of, okay, well, need a bit of rehearsal. We had two days rehearsal for a brand new band that had never played together before other than that session. Uh, no, Simon Phillips didn't do it. Um, his name's gone out of my head. Oh, Stuart, Stuart Elliott who's a great drummer, played with Kate Bush later on and Eric Clapton and all that stuff. He, he came back into Cockney Rebel because he was the original drummer. Very musical player. And so he, George, myself and Pete Wingfield played the Reading Festival second on the bill to 30,000 people. And, oh God, yeah, a two days rehearsal. Really didn't know the material very well. But Steve was great on the stage. I had no idea when I worked in the studio that he'd be that charismatic. And that convinced me that he he had uh, you know he he could be a big success, and so I said uh, when he said uh, you know I'm going to put a band together do you want to be in it I said yeah okay, um, and that's how I, uh, everybody in the, the, my all my sort of rock mates were all uh, you know aghast what was I doing this is the band that did Judy Teen and other you know sort of really strange pop tunes. But um, that the rock musicians kind of looked down their nose at. You know, we were very much kind of, you know, if you, if you hadn't grown up on Muddy Waters and Lead Belly and Howling Wolf, you really weren't, you know, and he hadn't. He'd grown up on, I don't know who. Uh. But of course, there was a, a fairly a strong change of direction when uh, when the, the band came in because we were quite influential in how the, the tracks were put together. Steve was a, a seat of the pants guy. You know, he wouldn't have the songs finished when he'd go in the studio. He'd have a sketch of it and then throw it open to the band, which was really nice for us because it meant we, we could play what we felt was right and it would be our style. We weren't being forced to, could you play like, uh, you know, somebody else and this is what I'm looking for. And he would have a vision that wasn't anything to do with your vision. But no, not at all. Duncan Mackay and myself uh, were very um, busy yeah, coming up with arrangements and, and so that so that, so the band was really quite fun to be in a quite high level of musicianship again. And then we had a, we did three albums, and uh, we had a great time. Toured America, opening for the Kinks, and that's how I ended up in the job with Rod Stewart because he came to see us in Los Angeles at the Roxy. I remember seeing him from the stage because the, you know the, there was a lot of people's heads sort of turned from looking at the band to looking to the door, and it was they were all looking at Britt Eklund. He was a great beauty, absolute fantastic, gorgeous-looking woman. And Rod stayed for the show, and then later on I got a call saying, would I be interested in joining the band? Before we get on to uh, Rod, uh, 
one one of the songs you're best known for is 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 your sort of guitar work on um, "Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me." Of course, so that mm-hmm. yeah must be yep. great memories of being number one, etc. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was. I think uh, my yeah it was the record I ever played on that went to number one. I think. Yeah, it was. It, it was great. It was, suddenly we were you know we were a really hot act. And all the stuff that goes with it, you know, being able to buy nice cars and houses and stuff, you know, it was it was cool. It was my, so I'm suddenly now, after family, I'm suddenly making what you could consider proper money. And you know, that's never been the driving force in my life, making money. But but when you do get it, it is kind of nice. I must admit, I've been rich and poor and rich and poor several times. And uh, Rich is just, just that little bit better, but not so much. I mean, I have had great times with no money at all when I was down in Positano with Sean Phillips. It was a great life. You've done it all. Try to come up and see me, 
Now we are moving on to another Krieger and Co. track, Jim. But where, you know, there is a, obviously a, an indelible link here to to Rod, who you, you mentioned earlier, and the song "I Was Only Joking." And so, you were there for the period and contributed to songs with Rod, who had an incredible period of success. Then, you know, songs like "Hot Legs," "You're in Your Heart," as well as the song we're playing. I was only joking. It was it was great. Rod is a very generous uh, musician. I mean, he's he's very you know we we're a great working relationship. We're 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 very very close friends now. I mean, I was best man at his wedding to Penny Lancaster, and uh, I'm godfather to his daughter Ruby, and he's godfather to my daughter Ava. Um, so out of that gig came a, a lifelong friendship, which is which I'm I'm very happy to have. And he's one of the few very rich people that I know that really really enjoys his life. He's you know I've I've had occasion to see the, those that just do nothing but complain. You know, they jets to the finest hotels and everything. All they do is moan about it. You know, uh, Rod's first wife, Alana, was like that. We were coming across the Atlantic on the QE2 just for a jaunt. Um, uh, Linda Lewis was my wife, and and he was with um, with uh, Alana. And he and I were just thick as thieves. You know, playing James Bond, dressing up in our black tie thing to go to the casino and. You know, hanging out with the crew in the pig and whistle and drinking with them, and all all sorts of great fun was being had with us. And Alana just groaned and and complained about the whole thing. It was really sad. You know, it was never good enough for her, no matter what. You, and this is not a woman who comes from a, a very wealthy background. She's a very comes from a very ordinary home in Texas uh, with an outside loo. You know, so she. It wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like I'm not used to this, you know. This is first class luxury travel on the on the QE2. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, so that uh, working with him in those days was well, it still is. It's still, it's fun. It's, it's a joy. And the band was pretty nice. Um, Phil Chen, of course, I'd worked with in the Linda Lewis band. Funnily enough, I watched the documentary, the, the Jeff Beck documentary last night when I couldn't sleep, and. And of course, Phil and and Max Middleton from the Linda Lewis band, they were and and Richard Bailey too. So Jeff actually had our band uh, play on Blow by Blow, and there's a song on there called She's a Woman, which is um, which is an old Beatles tune, and there's a, a, an arrangement of it that actually uh, I did uh, in the Lewis band. We it was it was I think Linda wanted to do that song, and and I did the arrangement. Yeah, you know, it was a head arrangement, you know. So it's not, I don't write dots or anything, but but I put the put the idea of it together. And of course, Max then later on playing on the Blow by Blow record suggested it to Jeff, and so that's my arrangement of of uh, She's a Woman on <laughs> on Jeff Beck's record. 
It was like, and when I heard it, I went, hang on a minute. I thought that was my idea. <laughs> um, and so Phil Chen was in that band. Uh, so he and I go way back. I love him. What a great bass player. God, he's fantastic. Um, so, so where were we? You want to play I Was Only Joking?
talking about uh linda lewis and we, we were talking about family so what better than to play and talk about linda's version of my friend the sun which is a you know wonderful track yeah thank you that's uh well she she, she we all love that song it's a great song i mean i'm surprised it wasn't well it was a bit of a hit but it, you know i'm surprised it a bit like may you never by uh, john martin it never got picked up and, and turned into a, a, a proper enormous hit by anybody because it's such a lovely song and that's Lau George playing the slide guitar who we borrowed just for the night from he was over here with the, the Warner Brothers music tour when they brought over the Doobie Brothers and Tower of Power and Little Feet and my goodness did they show us how to do things that lot good grief I don't, you're too young to have gone to that show but they did it at the Rainbow um and I saw the night I went because they could only get two, I think they only get two bands on a night. So I saw Tower of Power and and Little Feet. My goodness, kind of changed me forever that stuff. And and so because we were on Warner Brothers, we borrowed Tower of Power to play on one of the records, and we borrowed Loud George. And we the the, the hook for us was because they didn't know Linda from a hole in the ground. And we said, um, well, we're uh, we're making a record at uh, Apple Studios, you know, the Beatles uh, studio. And they were, what? Yeah, okay, man. Yeah, we like to come. Yeah, we like to be. You know, it was all that. That was the that was the the key to getting them in the room. And um, Lyle George uh, uh, did it for a couple of grams of coke. Didn't want any money. So you got any coke, man? I said, well, I'd probably find somebody who could find you some. <laughs> so <laughs> he walked in with his guitar and an MXR compressor, plugged the two in, straight into the console and listened to the track once, played the solo and took the guitar off and that was it. <laughs> it was wonderful. And sat around with us and talked and laughed and carried on for an hour or two. But it took him about 15 minutes to actually do the thing. I, mean, I think it's Alan Davis from Cat Stevens' band. I think he's the other guitar player on there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's him. Uh, he he was in the studio at some point doing that record. Lovely, you know. I had all the joy of working with these great people, great friends, and and wonderful players. You know, so privileged. I've had such a wonderfully lucky life. It, those records I made with Linda were really joyful. There was we, you know, we didn't fight or argue or anything. Later on, my second wife, uh, who was a who, who was a girl that eventually became a fashion designer called Jane Book. She wanted to be a, a singer-songwriter, and 
uh, my experience of going in the in the studio with with, with my partner, uh, you know, with, with Linda, was so, so uh, easy. And uh, then I said, yes, of course, I'll go to the studio with you and produce your your demos and everything. And it was a, it was really hard work. We used to fall out over you know every sixteenth note. So I think I was lucky that uh, Linda and I were always on the same page about what we wanted to do. And one of the things I remember very fondly about being married to Linda was sitting. We bought this lovely house in Oxshott in Surrey. Oh, a big gardener in a silly Irish setter that would sit in front of the fire and make a big log fire in the living room. We would sit on the floor and play guitar together in front of the fire with this old dog stinking the place up. And um, it was, it was, that was really quite beautiful. Those memories are, are, are pretty sort of idyllic, you know, how, how nice it is to be, you know, living and, and playing with, a, with an artist of uh, her caliber because she's a, good writer and quite an exceptional singer. I mean, that voice is, just goes anywhere she wants it to go. She's, there's um, the story of Stevie Wonder coming to England, one of the first times when he'd had, you know, the big hit, the first big hit records in a talking book and uh, that sort of thing. He was interviewed on the radio by a girl called Marsha Hunt, who was a friend of ours. And, um, and Marsha said, uh, so Stevie, who would you most like to uh, to meet uh, here in England? And he said, "Oh, well, that's easy, Linda Lewis." <laughs> so, so Marcy, after the interview was over, Marcy's on the phone to us saying, "Hey, you're never going to believe this." You know? And uh, so we went to meet Stevie in uh, Island Studios, where he was uh, mixing a live album, and and hung out with him for the evening. He couldn't have been nicer. And oh, that's right, I forgot this bit. Um, he she called him. She called us while Stevie was still in the studio, um, and, you know, while the record was playing. Uh, on, and Stevie got on the phone and sang one of Linda's songs to her down the phone. You know, she, first of all, she didn't even think that Stevie Wonder had the first idea who she was. Not alone would know one of her songs well enough to sing it to her. I mean, I could watch her visibly melting on the sofa. <laughs> Well on the run He 
connections keep circling but this circling leads us back to uh, bernie tarpin and uh, a track that you uh, wrote with bernie and rod never give up on a dream based on a true story of a, an athlete yes uh, terry terry fox what a guy terry fox so he has cancer i don't know what kind of cancer this was but but he lost a leg that was the and he was a, a very fit guy quite young i think he's probably in his 20s lost this leg then got a prosthetic leg and decided to raise money for cancer research i mean what i mean it's enough to lose your leg you just probably want to just you know watch tv and drink beer Uh, you know that would have been probably what i would have wanted to do but no terry said i'm going to go across canada to raise money for, for cancer research god bless him and so because he was an athlete he wasn't going to walk across canada he was going to run across canada and you know how big canada is i mean it's you know what's it three and a half thousand miles god almighty so off he went and this story filtered through to us uh, you know in the la times i think we were all living in los angeles at this time and rod brought it to my attention I don't know who was suggested that we wrote a song, not only about him, but we would give the money to the Terry Fox Foundation or whatever it was called. We would make them the beneficiaries of the song. So that's what we did. And sadly, tragically, Terry died. But the cancer was spread through his body and about, he got about two thirds across the country, as far as I remember. And, uh, and then it claimed him and he was gone. And uh, we met with the family afterwards and, um, his mum and dad and commiserated and all the rest of it. It was a very, uh, was, what a brave man. I mean, to talk about courage to do that. And so the song is, is sort of, if you wish now, it's kind of in his memory, I guess. Rod did a pretty good job, I thought. Um, was that Bernie and, and Rod and me? I, I know I wrote the music. I think so. Um, so I must have been, well, yeah, because my, my job in the, in the Stuart thing was generally the, the chords and the melodies, you know, well, not always the, all the melodies. I, the melodies we get co-written with Rod. I'd, I'd suggest a melody and then he would, uh, you know, fiddle with it or throw it away or, or keep it, whatever you like. I don't. I, I did write some lyrics with him, but not that much. He's a much better lyricist than me. He's a really good lyricist. I mean, he doesn't get the kudos for the stuff he writes, but boy, he's he's a wonderful lyricist. I think. Um, anyway, yeah, go on. Then play that if you like. 
Be free. 
you were talking about Rod being a wonderful lyricist and, um, you know, we're moving uh, towards the late 80s and, and a song which uh, you co-wrote with Rod that, that has some, you know, lovely lyrics and that's Forever Young, uh, another big hit. Yeah, that's one of my more successful songs with Rod. And he still does it on stage and quite often will do a duet with his daughter, you know, my goddaughter, Ruby. She now has a band called The Sisterhood and the two of them sometimes open for Rod and, uh, and Ruby will often sing this song with him, which is great, you know, father and daughter tune. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with that song. I, I like it very much. And there's a story that goes with that song, which uh, when we were making that record, at this point, I've left the band, I think, uh, officially. I can't remember exactly. Not, not wanting to keep touring and having a bit of a fallout with the manager. I didn't fall out with Rod, but I definitely fell out with the manager. I didn't like him at all. So I won't even give him a name check. Um, but still, Rod and I carried on working together as writers and me being playing on the records sometimes. Anyway, we're in the studio, overdub time, right? So we've cut the tracks and Rod's uh, done some vocals and everything. And uh, it's time to put some some other guitar parts on and I'm standing around in the room with uh, the engineer, Steve McMillan. Uh, we just, we, we put the track up and we listened to it. And Rod says, you know, I'm not sure about this one. I'm not even sure I want this one to go on the record. And there was a kind of a sharp intake of breath from, because Kevin's a writer on that too. Sharp intake of breath thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this is not only is this a lot of money going down the toilet if it doesn't go on the record, but, you know, we like this song very much. And Steve McMillan, the engineer, who never, ever, ever offered an opinion, as is kind of required with with engineers, very often, you you know, the producers will will talk about what they're going to do next with them. Unless the engineers asks for an opinion, he very, very rarely will give it. I'm talking at the top end of the business. I mean, in the beginning, engineers you know, do and say what they like. But when you're working with a mega success like Rod, you usually keep your mouth shut. And Steve turned and looked up at Rod from the console and he said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Rod. This is the best song you've got. <laughs> like that. Boom. I went, oh, God. oh, Steve, thanks. And Rod said, oh, is it? Oh, okay. Oh, well, let's finish it then. Just like that, from not on the record to back on the record in one sentence. God. And, and of course, he was nominated for a Grammy singing it. Yeah, big hit. Yeah, so uh, there was lots of those kind of things would go on, you know, songs that didn't make it to the record. In fact, I was talking to somebody just yesterday about where the old outtakes of everything are because we would overcut the record. You know, you, in the days of vinyl, you could only get 12 songs on a record. So we would cut maybe 18, and God knows where those are. So there's all those tracks. And sometimes there would be a guide vocal on them. Sometimes Rod wouldn't necessarily finish a lyric unless the he was sure it was going on the record. So we'd cut the track, he'd la-la to it, and then uh, hum and ha back whether he wanted to finish it. And so they, they would be shelved, some of those tunes. I wish I knew where they were. Some of them probably quite good. So there we are.
you talked, Jim, about kind of you know leaving Rod's band, but obviously you've carried on uh, writing music, and um, you had a hit with you know with a song that you you wrote, which uh, Joe Cocker recorded, Nuble Jamé. Yeah, that was um, how glad I was that Joe did that tune. It was lovely. Do you know what it did for me? Uh, it gave me more confidence because nearly everything I'd had success with had been with people I'd been working with directly. But Joe, I mean, I'd met Joe a couple of times, but I didn't know him really. You know, he was just, you know, you, you bump into people on the road or he came down to the studio one time when we were working and said hello to everybody and hung out for a while. In those days, the studio was a kind of a social event as well as, because the band would cut things live. So, you know, if you were in the room and the track was being cut, it was, you know, there was something to watch. Now it's, you know, one bloke at a computer and cutting things live is more, far more rare. Joe doing that song and then making it the single gave me quite a lot of confidence as a writer. It suddenly meant that, you know, it wasn't just because Rod sang my songs that they were successful. Somebody else could sing them and have a hit too. So it made me very happy. Um, and I wrote it with the wonderful drummer Russ Kunkel, who was James Taylor's drummer. We wrote the lyric together and uh, I wrote the music. And we wrote it in a French cafe in in California. We would uh, we would do the, the music on one day and sort of knock up the track. And then the next day we would go down to the cafe and have lunch and go in a back corner and write until it was done. It was quite, it was a lovely way to work. We had, we had a, a song with the, um, the Neville brothers as well that we wrote the same way. Uh, and because it was a French restaurant, for some reason, we were talking about uh, Lady Marmalade, you know, voulez-vous um, coucher avec moi ce soir? I said, well, why don't we write it in a French title just for fun? And of course, that turned out to be a really good idea because it was a huge hit in France. And Joe, who didn't really sell records in America at that time, was big in Germany and France, and of course the fact it had a European kind of title, a French title, obviously, um, helped it a lot. Who knew that bit of luck? If we if we'd gone to an Italian restaurant, you know, we might have had a hit in Italy. <laughs> yeah, so that was a good. Are you going to play that? Yeah, of course. Oh, good. I like that song. Yeah. Destiny. I need to disagree. But who's 
And now we do move on to your work with uh, Bernie, Fan Dogs. And uh, one of my favourite songs from the, I think, pair of records that you did with or as Fan Dogs, and it's Distance to the Mountain. Oh, yeah. That was a very productive time. Robin Lazurier and, and I, were, he, he took over from Gary Granger in the Stuart Band. And uh, he and I were thick as thieves and both you know, played, obviously, toured together with Rod. And uh, we're all very good friends. And we knew Bernie fairly well, but I, know, I got to know him extremely well because we spent all the time making these records at his ranch. in a beautiful uh, horse ranch in the, in the hills in Santa Inez, uh, outside of Santa Barbara. And he's a proper rancher, Bernie. He's a, he, he's a, he's a great horseman and he raised uh, cutting horses. 
and he had really a, a, an idyllic life up there in the hills. We would stay up there Monday through Friday and come home for the weekends. But we wrote prolifically there. Bernie, I remember we wrote two and a half songs in a day, which is a record for me. It was just pouring out of us up, up there. There was no distractions. And um, Bernie would come in in the morning. We'd start at about 10. He'd have a sheaf of lyrics, you know, because he, he just writes all the time whether there's a record to be made or not. And he would hand out, you know, maybe eight or ten different songs and titles and everything. And you'd read through them, and whatever one sort of clicked that day, you'd work on. So the lyrics were all pre-written, which makes it really easy, because sometimes the lyric itself suggests a feel, a tempo, a melody. So uh, it was just easy. Robin and I would just kick off and follow the melody that the lyric suggested. We'd throw it around a bit. And what was amazing about Bernie that I didn't expect at all until I started working this closely with him is if I said, look, Bernie, I've got this melody that's still keeping going here, but I've run out of lyric. You know, this is the chorus, and, and, and I think I need another couple of lines. And instead of being precious about it, he'd go, okay, and he'd maybe step out the room and go and sit at the table looking out across the valley and come back, uh, you know, five minutes later and say, what about this then? I mean, it would be perfect. I mean, just drop of a hat, write a lyric. I mean, fantastic guy. Fantastic. A wonderful, wonderful man. I'd written with him before I met, before I worked with him and, and Robin. Uh, we'd written, well, of course, we wrote for Rod. This is before Robin was in the band. And then we, I would, if I would have a musical idea, I'd throw it at Bernie. He'd write a lyric to it just kind of the next day. I mean, it was madness. So there's quite a lot of songs lying around somewhere that, that I've never looked at for years that that, um, that we wrote. Anyway, this is one of them is going to be on the Craig and Co album. It's called Shane. And we wrote it for Roy Orbison because, I mean, I didn't have any plans to have a band and, and Farm Dogs was a long way off in the future. Um, we wrote it for Roy Orbison. And, of course, um, Roy Orbison decided to leave the planet before he got to record it. Um, where were we apart from that bit? <laughs> Just to introduce Farm Dogs and Distance to the Mountain. Okay, yeah, this was, um, I can't, which, which, you know which album this was from? I think it was the second Immigrant the, the Sons. The second. Uh, uh, Immigrant Sons, yeah, there you go, yeah. This was the first album we recorded without any drums or bass. It was just acoustic guitars. And then uh, the record company said, well, it's all very well, you know, you being this um, pure, but we think we need to have bass and drums on it. So we put on Bob Glob played bass. Uh, I can't remember who played drums. Maybe it was Tony Brock. Tony Brock, anyway, definitely played on the second record, and we did them. We cut those tracks live. Uh, Immigrant Sons. I can't. Rem- I mean, I obviously remember the song, but I don't remember writing. We wrote so much stuff uh, and at such speed. Oh, it's like. But it's like Elton says that he, excuse me, I'm not comparing myself to Elton in any way here, but but Elton said that he would write the song in, you know, uh, an hour after Bernie gave him the lyric. And I don't know what it is about Bernie's lyric, but it, it's, they're inspiring. You just, the song just seems to pop out. So that was, I guess, um, Distance to the Mountain was the same thing. <laughs> After her wedding day She sees the sharp-edged dog 
passion stripped away Now she waits alone in his dark deserted house Painting scenes for a future she can't live without Locked up in his soul She'd like to cheat the silence Drag him across the coast Some of us can't judge The distance to the mountain But something in my blood Says never draw the line She's closer than you relatively up to date you know on tap an ultimate track you've mentioned that you're still good friends with with rod and um 
I want to play Brighton Beach, which is from Rod's album from about five years ago, Time. But I understand that you played a pivotal role in Rod really writing more prolifically in this sort of latter period of his career. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, well, I was always grumbling at him that he didn't write anymore, that he was, uh, you know, he was putting out records. And it's all very well doing the, you know, the Great American Songbook. And I think he did a really good job with those things and a Christmas album and this sort of stuff and then a bunch of covers. And I said, but, you know, you've forgotten what fun it is to write. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of a shame that you've decided to, you know, close up the notebook and and, and give it up. Anyway, one day he invites me around to Sunday lunch, which was something that happens quite regularly. And... I brought my 12-string, and um, after lunch, he sat down in the living room and started to play. This song started to, to pop out, and we finished, uh, we finished the melody and the chords for most of it in about an hour. And then the following day, I spent the night there, and the following day, we got up and wrote, I think, the bridge or whatever else was missing. And um, I took the idea, I recorded it on my iPhone, and then I, I sort of flew that into a Pro Tools session, re-recorded the guitars, and dropped Rod's vocal into. So, so it was. It sounded much better. The quality of the recording was much better because uh, you know I've got a little studio at home. And I sent it back to him, and he said, oh, "Actually, this is really quite good," and uh, wrote the lyric, and that was it. He was off because uh, it, that was the first song he'd written in about fifteen years. And he very very kindly uh, uh, has uh, you know, credited me with kind of kickstarting his writing, and then he's just he's you can't stop him now. He's on his the third record, and it's all pretty well all written. There's more of him writing with Kevin Savigar, though, who's who's my old partner, or Rod's old partner too, because um, for a lot of that time Rod was in America and I was here, so the writing because I only really like writing in the room. I don't really I'm not really a big fan of of knocking up a tune at home and sending it off to him for approval. I don't like working like that. I find that kind of, I don't know. It's to me, it doesn't make any sense. If you sit down with the artist and write the song from scratch, it's far more organic. It builds. And also, for example, if he doesn't like a melody, I'm suggesting I can change it then and there. Or if he doesn't like this particular chord or if it's too fast or too slow, all the things that make the song work can be adjusted if you're both in the room together. Whereas if I send it to him and he doesn't like the hi-hat sound, you know, he can chuck the song out because he doesn't like, you know, the bass line. The bass line doesn't work in his head. And so he throws the song away. And I find that really annoying. <laughs> really annoying. <laughs> so if it's just me and a guitar and our voices picking out melodies, it's easy. That's how you get the best work, I think. You know, I think all my all my best songs have been done that way, writing you know live in the room. So that's how that song came about.
guess you found it hard to simply just ignore this scruffy, beat-up, working-class teenage troubadour. So we fell in love, and I toured your heart with my out-of-tune guitar. You were wonderful, you were mystical, and the envy of all of my friends. Seems like only yesterday. The stars on bright blue beach Oh, what a time it was What a time to be alive Remember Janice and Jimmy Kennedy and King, how we cried I sang to you the songs of Ramblin' Jack You were Greta Garbo and I was Carolac And we played so hard and we loved so hard Seemed we never ever slept they were crazy days, they were wonderful days And I loved you with all of my heart Seems like only yesterday Under the stars on bright blue beach Oh, your daddy had plans that did not include me Stay away from the door And I dreamed how I dreamed I could steal your way To some far off distant shore to our final track of the show Jim and obviously it had to be Cregan and Co and actually a new track uh, a single that, that came out uh, a few months back Don't Listen yeah is this a taster of the the, the new album that you're working on uh, yes it is it's uh, it's, the, it's the same lineup, the same people 
the songs are, will will shift about. This is is a bit rocky, um, but that's only one side of us. We're we're doing all sorts of things, uh, but. Yeah, it's a it's a taster of it. I'm quite pleased with it. I found it. I was highly because I wrote all the lyric on this one. I'm quite amused by uh, by my own uh, silliness. So, <laughs> in some of the rhymes, you know, are, are quite amusing. And also that sort. Of, I, I I'm a I was a big big fan of Ian Dury and the Blockheads, and so there's a little nod to you know hit me with your rhythm stick, you know, kind of that. Uh, the, the kind of crazy uh, lyrics that that are amusing and witty, and I, I was trying for that. Whether I achieved it or not, that's for somebody else to come up with. But that was the plan during the verses. I would be, I'd hope they would be amusing, you know. And it pokes fun at everybody, which is also something I like to do. So I'm hoping that um, that uh, that people will like it, and it will help uh, open some doors for the band. It's not my intention to turn this into a tour the world you know six months of the year kind of act i'm i'm not really that interested in doing that but uh, if if we can continue to play sold out theaters you know 500,000 people and play some festivals that would do me just fine uh, having been there and done all that stuff uh, playing the arenas i i don't really i don't really care to do that anymore it's uh, you know it's all right i'd rather play a small theater and you can you, if i get off the mic and and speak loudly people at the back can hear me so yeah you know you've you've got quite a few shows up over the next month and i spotted that you're playing uh the wonderful Cropperty festival yeah we've got uh we you know we don't as i said we have guys in the band i should tell you who they are too i mean there's pat davy who plays bass yeah who is uh who's an extraordinarily fine musician there's harry james on drums from thunder as i ex- explained there's ben mills who's our uh, uh, singer and, uh, and and guitar player uh, he's uh, he's had his own bands and you know was, was a big finalist in the X Factor, mm. uh, but he's recovered from that and uh, and he's a he's a great singer and great guy. And then the the secret weapon is Sam Tanner, the keyboard player, who, who funnily enough um, he played at the Faces reunion because uh, I told Rod, you know, after dear Ian McLagan died, I, I said you're going to be looking for a keyboard player. I said I've got the guy. Mm. And I sent him a bit of, of Sam playing. And, of course, Robin, who played, uh, Robin Missouri, played in that Faces reunion too, said, oh, yeah, Sam Tanner, he's fantastic. So Rod, just without even a second thought, brought him in. And, uh, and so he's, that's one of his credits. I'm honoured to, uh, to be in it. I think uh, uh, these, these guys are as good as any of the musicians I've ever worked with, and that's a lot a lot a lot of people you know so i hope people will uh, will continue to come and see us and uh, and i can carry on this modest lifestyle that i'm enjoying at the moment <laughs> that's superb and uh people just need to go to creganandco.com to find out all the music and uh, the upcoming uh, gigs yeah that'll that'll do it yeah yeah just search for us on on google's cregan and co or just search for me and that's uh, you know uh, i've got my own website as well well, I'm writing a book too, by the way, uh, which uh, some of these stories that you've heard already today will uh, show up in that. All right. I'm about halfway through. It's going to be finished by October. So very, very occasionally it'll be informative, but mostly it's going to be fun, I think. And that's the idea is that I tell s- stories of my wicked past <laughs> and hopefully wicked future. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Jim. It's been you know real privilege and, uh, and pleasure to to hear what is a remarkable journey through the music industry and no, thank you. and the, you know the amazing musicians that you worked with and 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 you know contributed to and and the you know the the body of work that that you've left and and are still producing. Yeah, it's a nice feeling. I must admit, I've been blessed that I didn't have to have a proper job. Hmm. It's called playing music for a reason. You know, it's not working music. That's the, it's a great joy and privilege to have had a, a career where I haven't had to do anything else but write and play and have fun. You know, it's, I'm so lucky. Mm. So lucky because there are so many wonderful, wonderful musicians out there that don't get the opportunities that I get. Because, in fact, one of the things I was going to say about the, you know, the opening paragraph of my book is that you don't really... I'll give you the secret to success in the music business. Be lucky. And then I say, I say something like, well, now I've told you, you can put the book down because, you know, you're not going to learn anything else. That's how it, that's, be lucky. That will take you, uh, it'll take you wherever you need to go. I mean, the, the Rod talks about that, about meeting Long John Baldry on a train station in Richmond or Twickenham. And, uh, and if he hadn't met Long John Baldry, would he have had a career? And, and when the guy in, mm. in, uh, where was it? Cleveland turned over the, the record and found Maggie May on the B side, mm. That luck. I mean, what luck was that? The, the record company didn't even want to put that song on the record. All this stuff mm. that leads mm. you, that leads you. Yeah. I mean, so as I say, there are many, many talented musicians out there that, uh, that don't have the luck. You know? So uh, I feel very privileged. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to spend with me. And uh, look, I look forward to uh, hearing you know, what you've done. Bye bye. Bye bye, Jason. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or click on the bright orange banner on the right hand side at thestrangebrew.co.uk. Thanks very much. <laughs>